Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 117, Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, The Science. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. Coming up very soon, this November 2019, astronauts aboard the International Space Station are set to kick off a unique and difficult set of spacewalks to repair an experiment called the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. Sounds a lot like something straight out of sci-fi, right? But it's very real, and a very complicated piece of equipment. The Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, or AMS, is looking at high-energy particles and looking for evidence of antimatter and dark matter in the cosmos, which may reveal more about the formation of the universe. No big deal. Now with such a complicated particle physics experiment comes some complicated spacewalks, very much on par with the Hubble Space Telescope servicing missions. We'll have to do a podcast on that sometime. So to help bring to light the significance of this experiment and these spacewalks, we're going to dive deep into the story of the AMS and this repair, and break it into three parts. The science, the spacewalks, and the tools, all with fascinating discussions with the experts that are working on repairing and upgrading the AMS. So today, for part one of this three-part series, we're discussing the science of the AMS, focusing on cosmology and astrophysics with Brandon Reddell. Riddell is an assistant program scientist in the International Space Station program here at the Johnson Space Center. He has a PhD in physics, specializing in high-energy space physics. Most of his graduate work was focused on modeling high-energy collisions produced in accelerators on Earth. And at NASA, he spent over 10 years testing and modeling spacecraft hardware and the human body for radiation effects. Here, he also collaborates with one of the primary authors of the Galactic Cosmic Ray model that NASA uses to predict astronaut health risks, as well as hardware reliability to improve model predictions for these deep space missions. The AMS is one such instrument providing data on cosmic ray species that are of interest in improving these NASA models. So, let's get right into it. Astrophysics and Cosmology 101 and the Science of the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer with Dr. Brandon Riddell. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit. Here she goes. Is it? We have a podcast. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you. I'm a pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to it. I am both excited and very nervous to talk about this today because uh, we talk a lot about human spaceflight, which is which is part of this story because it is an experiment on the space station and there's going to be some spacewalks to actually go fix it. But now we're getting into cosmology, we're getting into astrophysics, so I'm going to do my very best to try to ask very appropriate and relevant questions for you. No, I, I, that's great. It's a very complex experiment and it covers a lot of fields, so uh, I'll do my best to try to answer everything. Well, let's go right into it. I wanted to start by kind of setting the background of, of what it is exactly that the AMS is exploring by giving kind of a 101. So let's go into cosmology and astrophysics. Tell us about the universe, Brandon. Okay. Well, first of all, we know the universe is very big, um, but we also know that it had a beginning, right? That's That's been pretty well confirmed uh, really in the last century. Uh, Edwin Hubble, you may have heard of, first measured redshift, which is sort of a measure of how everything's leaving, spreading away from us, right, at some velocity. Um, so there's been a whole whole slew of other satellite uh, 
uh, measurements, like of the cosmic microwave background and things like that, that have confirmed this. There's no doubt that um, we know that it's um, expanding. Um, if you just take one over the expansion rate, you can sort of derive how old the universe is. And so we know we're about 14 billion years old. Now, so the expansion rate is still uh, under investigation. Um, mm. There's, you know, there's some variations in the numbers, but they're all indicating 13, 14 billion years old or something like that. And so um, what we do know, too, is uh, we have a lot of theories, like from general relativity and things like that, that also point that there was an ultimate beginning um, that also uh, fit fit the model and predict what the future distribution of galaxies look like, you know, how, how the universe is spatially organized and things like that, and, and the right elements that are in the universe. So, so we really have really good models that help support that, and so we feel like we have a pretty good view of the universe. And that view, the thing you're talking about right now, is, is the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, it's the Big Bang Theory. Uh, that's sort of the generic term, but there's actually several different models, and, and hmm. we can talk about that now or later. But Let's one, go right into it, so, yeah. So one of the big models is called the Lambda CDM model model. Uh, so lambda is just the Greek letter, looks like an upside down triangle, hmm. uh, kind of like an upside down V basically. And it's, it's really the value that um, uh, refers to dark energy. Okay, so the CDM part of lambda CDM is cold dark matter. So really this model is, is purely a mathematical model that's a fit to um, only using only six parameters uh, that basically describe the overall evolution uh, of the universe today. And so what we use is um, there's something called the baryon density, and we can talk about baryons here in a little bit. Um, these are all inputs, baryon density, dark matter density, um, the age of the universe, um, uh, and there's a couple other parameters. They're pretty complex, but just with only just six parameters, we can actually, from right after the Big Bang, using the current laws of physics, this model will run, and it'll predict... Um, basically the existence and the structure of the cosmic microwave background radiation, which we measure all the time. Mm -hmm. um, it also predicts the large-scale structure of the universe, um, the distribution of galaxies, um, the, the abundances of hydrogen and helium, which are the most ab abundant elements in the universe, and, and so forth. So, so we have a, it matches a lot of what we observe. So it's probably the most successful model, but there are some shortcomings, um, and there's some competitors, but that's predominantly the major model used uh, today, and it's sometimes it's awful, off, often referred to as the standard model of cosmology. Yeah, so basically what you're doing is you're looking at the universe and you're saying, here's here's all the things that exist, this cosmic microwave background, right? Something that's, it's, it's like, what is it, three, four Kelvin, something? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it's the current just, temperature. Yeah, it's just like so it's fizzling in the background, so we're like, what what made this, what made the galaxies the way they were, and, you, and you're, this particular Big Bang theory is a way of modeling that mathematically. Right, and that's just one thing that it models, right? It, uh -huh. it successfully models, like, what's really important is the, the, the abundance of elements that were created initially in the Big Bang, because once that's set, that determines how much mass you have in the universe and how many stars and galaxies you have and so forth. So that, that's really an important feature as well. See, that's one thing that's really, it's, it's fascinating to the point where I, you, I don't think anyone can really fully comprehend just, you know, when you're talking about stuff in the universe, yeah. how much stuff there is. You know, we're right. looking at our galaxy and we're like, wow, that is huge. That's right. full of billions of stars. And now we're figuring out that a lot of these stars, or maybe most of them, have planets. So it's just, it's becoming so big just in one galaxy. And then you find out, yeah, there's a few more galaxies. Well, there's that, right? <laughs> so, so the current estimates are that there's billions of galaxies. Yeah. Um, there's been some research done in the last year that um, 
if you look at smaller galaxies that are called dwarf galaxies, so like the Milky Way galaxy has several dwarf galaxies. Like we have the large and small Magellanic clouds, but outside of that, they're so small that we can't even see. Hmm. Um, so most galaxies have maybe hundreds to thousands of dwarf galaxies. So when you factor all that in, some of the estimates in this recent research estimate trillions of galaxies. Ah, oh, see, now but, you don't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> they're big numbers, but, all, but not all galaxies are... Um, as life as we know, it might not be suitable for life because there's a lot of instability and irregular and elliptical galaxies and things like that. But nevertheless, there's a large amount of material. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting is uh, when you actually look at all the galaxies and stars, when you, when you talk about the total content of the, of the universe, matter and energy, that's only about 5% of what we really see out there. So um, the rest of it's unknown. So we only know a lot about a small amount. Yeah. Um, when you look at um, just as mass alone, the amount of stars and galaxies is approximately 15% of the universe um, by, by mass. And this mysterious material of dark matter is the other a part of it for mass. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the, with the way that you're modeling the predictions of, of the universe, right? So there's, you, you, if you just do the calculations based on what you observe mass-wise, the un it just it doesn't work out. There's this other thing that's helping out with the formation of the universe. Um, in, a, in a sense, you could say that. Okay. Now, we know observationally, and we have indirect evidence of dark matter. I mean, mm -hmm. we can look at um, the galaxies, the rotation curves. In fact, that's sort of how it was first uh, uh, determined, was that there had to be a lot more mass uh, around galaxies to account for the rotations of stars around the on, out in the spiral arms and things like that. Mm -hmm. We also know the universe is expanding, um, and that's related to this dark energy term. So th these are all all parameters that we can measure. Um, going back to this lambda CDM model, mm -hmm. um, those are all predicted um, based on these initial six inputs. Um, so we can compare that with what we measure. Um, as long as you know, we know the model's predicting everything we see. Um, we have good reasons to believe that the, the what that model predicts for these values um, are indeed close to what what they are in reality. Hmm. So, what does that say about um, about what we know about the formation of the universe? Like, what questions? I guess what what I'm leading to is, what questions do we have? even with this model that we still need to answer? Well, so, yeah, that's a great question. And so, again, this model sort of picks up at some small amount of time after the Big Bang, right? So we mm -hmm. don't know, obviously, what was before the Big Bang, right? The current understanding, when you look at the space-time theorems, that there was nothing, right? So that, that's really hard to comprehend. Oh, yeah. And that actually gets into metaphysics and things like that. But, but once we have something started... Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty of what initially happened in that first... 10 to the minus 38th seconds or something like that, right? <laughs> so one of the current theories is this, it's called inflation. So for uh, approximately at 10 to the minus 36 seconds or so, the universe expanded 20 orders of magnitude. Um, we don't know how to model that, but we do have the, uh, some evidence that that actually occurred. So that part of the model has not been sorted out as far as modeling that, initi that initial inflationary epoch of time. Mm -hmm. So that needs to be incorporated. And then on top of that, uh, you might have heard of this term called quantum gravity. We don't know how gravity works at the quantum level. And so our understanding of physics and recombining all these forces back at that earlier time, that, that's sort of a, that's current modern research in, in particle physics and astrophysics, cosmology. It sort of all blends together at that point. But there's a lot of understanding of the physics going on at the smallest time 
scales right at the beginning of the universe. So naturally, and this can and this can sort of lead into our discussion about AMS is based on these models of how we think the universe is created and what we would like to understand. What are things that we can look for that would provide the evidence? Right, and so yeah, that's exactly right. AMS is looking for um, antimatter. Uh, and I can talk about that here in a second, yeah. um, dark matter, and then just cosmic rays in general. Um, one of the big questions is, and this has perplexed uh, astrophysicists, cosmologists for, for decades now, is when we look out at everything, why, why is there only matter and no antimatter? Because these, the, the initial, these initial models, like Landon CDM, they actually predict we should have a 50-50 mix of antimatter and, and matter. Um, antimatter simply it's the same thing as matter but it has the opposite charge so if you think of a proton as a plus charge to it an antiproton is the same mass but it has a negative charge and it also has some different quantum numbers that kind of determine the spin and angular momentum and things like that but but effectively it's the same particles with with negative charge hmm. and so um, AMS is looking at um, signs from antimatter to try to understand is there any original antimatter out there from the creation of the universe or maybe is it um there's some theories that talk about dark matter um, either decaying or annihilating each other that could produce antimatter hmm. so that's sort of why it's designed uh, uh and, and located in space is to make these measurements to try to help sort that out and at the same time uh a lot of these things as they travel from distant parts of our universe our galaxy to earth they become high energy and in their they're just high energy particles moving and we call those cosmic rays. And so those have direct application and bearing on success for human spaceflight as well. Hmm. Okay, so I wanna go through, so you talked about what it's looking for. You said antimatter was one of them because mm -hmm. there should be antimatter, so where is it? The other part was, did you say dark matter? Was, yeah, dark was matter. What we're looking for? Yeah. So how do you, how, what's what's going on there? How can we look for that? Okay, so so for dark matter? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so so dark matter, um, so we know observationally, like we mentioned earlier, we, we definitely know that there's a lot of mass sitting out there um, around galaxies, for instance, in between a lot of the voids in space. Um, the, land of the land of CDM model actually predicts 26% uh, of the mass energy content of our universe is dark matter. Wow. Um, and so that's in conjunction with predicting everything else in the universe. So we know there's probably a significant amount of it. And, and most importantly, um, we can actually observe it. Also through gravitational lensing, we know that there's got to be additional mass out there. And that's light bending around other galaxies when we're looking out in the distance. You're measuring how much light is bending, essentially. Well, you're, you're looking at objects um, in behind more massive objects. And mm -hmm. so the light kind of gets bent around them. And so you might see maybe two images because huh. um, the light kind of gets split and, and you're seeing it looks like two different angles, but it's really just being bent around a large massive object. And so we know um, just looking at the normal matter there that there's got to be more mass to bend that light because mm -hmm. we know general relativity pretty well. In fact, it's probably the most accurate, the th most well-tested of the physics theories. I think we know it out to an accuracy of 15 or 16 decimal places. And what's what's that general relativity? Gen uh, yeah, the, the general Einstein's theory of general relativity. Which says uh, space and time. Is that the one? Or yeah, is yeah, that it, else? yeah, it's related. It, it's, 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 you know, defined by a very complex math, but in, in effect... Yeah. Really, what it's saying is it's it's another form of gravity, but it basically tells you that mass warps the the, the space around it, and and it's that warping of the space that controls how that mass moves in there. I so see. So it's very interlocked. It'll it'll make you think a little crazy if you think about it too much. But it's very <laughs> mass. Uh, 
mass and um, gravity are effectively you know this related. Okay. To that. So dark matter, uh, um, we're trying to measure that because nobody knows physically what's it consist of, right? We know indirectly that it exists, but we don't know what particles it's made of. And so um, there's some theories uh, out there, some um, that don't have any direct. Um, uh, scientific evidence, but mathematically, um, if you extend the standard model of physics, which predicts all the right particles out there, there, there's various forms of that that lead to predictions of these exotic particles, things called WIMPs, axions, um, oh. things like that. A WIMP is a uh, weakly interacting massive particle. That's just a, an acronym. Because it's called dark matter, it's dark, um, it doesn't give off or interact with light. So that it's really hard to see. We do, it's hard to probe it and test for it, and so that's why we can't measure it. But the idea is, if these if this dark matter is consisted of um, these other particles, it can interact with itself and, and create secondary particles that that we know about and maybe can detect. And so that's what we're looking for is detecting these secondary interactions that in, indicate. Um, you know, some other type of particle that's theorized right now. Okay, yeah, and this is along the lines of things we can look at to sort of help us give that evidence of how the universe formed. We talked about antimatter, we talked about dark matter. The other one you mentioned was cosmic rays? Yeah, cosmic rays, yes. So what's that one? So um, so if you think, um, so I said the universe is about, let's say, 14 billion years old. Mm -hmm. um, the first generation of stars, they're actually called generation three stars. They in galaxies, they they kind of formed a couple hundred when the universe was a couple hundred million years old. From that time forward, there's been generations of stars uh, in galaxies that have gone through these life cycles, the processes. And so, for massive stars, one of their end states is they they swell up and then um, they get so big, and then gravity pulls them back down when they exhaust their fuel, and they explode as a supernova. And so, a lot of the cosmic rays are just if you think of the periodic table of elements from hydrogen all the way up to iron. They're just the nuclei, um, no electrons around them, just the nuclei zipping through space at relativistic speeds. Hmm. Um, as they travel, they interact with magnetic fields and they get accelerated. So they're, they're moving very fast near the speed of light and they're, they're all over. They, they come from every possible direction at random angles and they're just floating around the universe everywhere. Wow. So they're high energy. Are they heavier particles too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like a proton has, uh, it's just a proton with an electron around it. Um, you go to helium, you have two protons and, and two neutrons, right? Mm -hmm. So you, as you go up the periodic table of elements, all the way up to iron, which has 26 uh, protons and 56 nuclei, protons and neutrons. So, yeah, the higher you go up in the periodic table, the bigger the nucleus is. And therefore, the more damage they could cause, too. Hmm, okay. Now, is uh, there's something else here that it might be a separate topic or it might be along the lines of stuff we can look for are quarks are they intermingled in this in any way um so quarks yeah um they're they're they play a role in this but they, okay. they don't exist by themselves hmm. um quarks uh they basically um the only way we really can see those is through like currently when we if you look at like particle colliders like at cern right it uses very high energy um interactions so accelerates let's say two protons near the speed of light and collide them mm -hmm. and then for a brief amount of time you, you sort of break it up into its parts. And we, we can talk about that in a minute, but, mm -hmm. a, but a proton's made up of three different quarks. So for baryonic matter, which is another name for saying all the matter that we see and that you and I are made up of, all the stars and everything, um, pretty much made up of quarks. And there's six different flavors of quarks. Um, 
But they, uh, the strong nuclear force sort of binds them together. And so it's so strong that um, you really can't separate them that for that long without them recombining or um, interacting some other way. So we don't, they, don't, they don't exist by themselves. Hmm. But you can infer things about quarks based on studying these other particles. I see. So that's where they come in, by studying the other particles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now... I think we set a nice base for cosmology and and astrophysics. We have this idea of how we think the universe formed, and we're looking at these things to help us give evidence of that. So now let's go to the alpha magnetic spectrometer. Okay. What is this thing, and how is it helping to answer those questions? Okay, so uh, I like to think of the alpha magnetic spectrometer version 2, which is on space station, mm -hmm. as basically a particle physics experiment that you might see at CERN somewhere, but instead of being at CERN, it's mounted on, on the truss of the space station, right? So it's it's unique in the sense that it, it is a modern physics particle detector out, a very complex one out in space, right, on, on the space station. And so what it, and we can talk uh, more about the hardware if you want, um, mm -hmm. but it basically has uh, six or seven different types of detector systems to help you measure um, all the parameters that you need to help sort out these big questions about antimatter, dark matter, um, uh, and cosmic rays, right? Like as far as measuring the charge of these particles, the masses, and, and, and um, if it's antimatter versus matter. Okay, so it is, the, the position in space has a certain benefit to it um, in terms yeah. of finding where these yeah, particles okay. are Yeah, okay. So, yeah, from. that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So, so being up in, on the space station, we're, we're above most of the Earth's atmosphere. Um, if we weren't, if we're down, on, let's say, on the surface, you have this column of atmosphere above us, and most of the cosmic rays interact with the oxygen and nitrogen in the atmosphere, and they break apart, and so you really don't get a direct measurement of the um, primary cosmic rays. So, so we're above hmm. most of that, and so we have a direct path um, uh, of measuring the, those primary particles. And then we also have the infrastructure on space station with power and data and so forth that, that helps us make that make it possible. Okay. So you mentioned um, going into the hardware of AMS, like what is yeah. inside of it that actually helps to yeah. do this. So how does that, how does that work? Okay, so, uh, so basically there's AMS. The, so the M in AMS is mag magnetic, alpha magnetic spectrometer. So it basically has this large magnet in the center um, that's approximately 3,000 times the strength of the Earth's magnetic field. So that, that sounds like a lot, but wow. it's it's over, let's say, about a meter or so of space, right? Whereas there's fields around the planet, right? So it has more bending power. Uh, but the, nevertheless, that's a very powerful magnet to be in space. And so what we do is, as these charged particles zip along in space, when they come near a magnetic field, they like to spiral around magnetic field lines. Hmm. And so the direction they spiral tells you the charge, right? If it's, they, if, it's, if it's a positive charge, it'll spiral one direction. If it's negative, it'll go the other. So the purpose of the magnetic field is just strictly to get a particle to bend it a little bit. And so all the material around that magnet is, is six or seven different uh, 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 detectors, let's say. So there's silicon tracker trackers that um, basically measure the trajectory, and that's how we can get the curvature so we know which way. Um, uh, it, it's a parameter we need to know to help, based on the magnetic field strength, to get the charge and the um, momentum of the particle, which is related to its energy. Okay. Um, there's transition detectors that help distinguish between protons and electrons versus... Um, uh, really just between protons and electrons. Um, it, it, 
as it transver comes in and transverses many layers of materials, you get different X-rays that are created from, let's say, the electrons that don't get generated by, pro by protons, so we can distinguish between those two types of particles. Um, there's something called time-of-flight counters that use energy loss to um, basically help understand the charge of the, cos of the cosmic rays. Um, also, um, it helps on timing the events because we, we need to count the ones that enter in one side and travel out the other side, not coming in out through the side of it. Hmm. So um, as it trans, you know, basically when, when it goes through one end of it, it kind of starts, it kind of resets all the other detectors to say, okay, start counting at this point. So it can measure all the right parameters and tie it to the same event. And then there's um, something called anti-coincident coincident detectors that help roll out particles coming in from the side because um, you don't want to count those if you don't have the full uh, the f having the particle interact with all the detectors where you can get all the full information. You're only going to get a subset of information, and that could be erroneous on some of the data analysis. Hmm. And then there's something called a RICH. Um, it's called RICH. It stands for the Ring Imaging Cherenkov Detector. Um, so when particles move faster than the speed of light inside a material, they emit a light cone. It's a well-known, it's called the Cherenkov effect. And so the, the size of that cone is, uh, tells you a lot about um, the velocity of that particle. So that helps really measure the velocity. And then finally, there's this thing called the ECAL. It's electromagnetic calorimeter. And it's just a bunch of material. And so when a proton-type particle comes in versus a lep, uh, an electron, it has a different type of particle shower. So it can basically dis distinguish electrons and positrons separately from protons and, and heavier nuclei like helium and stuff so so between all these six detectors we're basically measuring the charge the mass the momentum or energy and so you build up this you just collect particles over time to build up statistics so that you can uh, get more accurate answers to understanding you know the distribution of particles that are coming in so it's it's more it's more collecting information about what's happening to the particles as they pass through based on how they react with the magnetic right, field. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. The okay. magnetic field, it's all about the magnetic field. Yeah. And then, so, um, and that's related to the AMS EVAs. Um, mm -hmm. The magnetic field causes the, the particle to go through the silicon trackers. And so that's really key to understanding if it's matter versus antimatter, because if it curves one way or the other, we need to be able to measure that. If you can't measure that, there's no way to you can't tell. So oh. that that's sort of why, um, that's sort of why the 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 reason for the 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 EVA is to repair some equipment on that. I see. But but um, and we can talk about that in a minute. But um, ultimately, uh, it's a very complex system. It has a lot of computers in it, a lot of data channels, <laughs> and um, but it's all about counting particles, counting particles, their energy and, and their charge, basically mass. Yeah, just a massive collection of data. Because yeah. you, like you said, there's particles flying everywhere. Yeah. Space happens to be a great place to do it, and it's measuring the way they're interacting. That's interesting. I did have a clarification point, because this part is just kind of rattling around in my brain. You said when, when uh, positively charged particles go through the magnetic field, they spin one way. Yeah. And when negatively charged, they spin the other way. Yeah. Now, what's the difference between antimatter? So, so antimatter's... Um, it's the same thing as matter, but it has the opposite charge. So, yeah. for instance, the positron is the antimatter 
equivalent of an electron. So an electron, as we all learned in high school chemistry, has a negative charge, mm -hmm. right, E within minus sign. Well, positron is the exact same mass, 9.1 times 10 to the minus 31 kilograms, but it has a plus charge. Hmm. So there's this fundamental physics theorem called the Lorentz force, and it has to do with the charged particle moving in the presence of a magnetic field. And so um, th there's a force that causes the beginning of the bend. So a positive charge, when you do the math, the, it'll tell you it's going to, let's say, go clockwise if it's traveling a certain direction around the magnetic field. Mm -hmm. The opposite charge, the math, um, the force bends it the opposite direction. And it's strictly because of the minus sign difference. I see. It's really, uh, I mean, mathematically, it's just the difference of a sign, but, but that's, um, it's been verified since Isaac Newton's time, probably, right? That, yeah. Um, well, probably not that far back, but um, they didn't know about electrons and stuff back then. But um, so a proton it, it's has really a, well known. A proton yeah. has a positive charge, yeah, proton's too. Yeah, right? proton's positive. But, it, but it's just basically the way that an electron would interact and the way a proton would interact are different. They would just spin opposite because they're antimatter. Um, yeah, the direction... Well, okay, a proton is not antimatter, but a positron is. That's what I'm saying, is that, like, the yeah. way a proton goes through and has a positive charge, it spins like a positive charge, but it interacts with the magnet because it's a, it's a proton, it's not a positron. R like, right, so yeah. all charged particles will, will spin one way or the other. Right. So if it's positive, it'll, let's say, for sake of argument, it'll go, um, based on the configuration of the magnetic field, like what direction is it pointing in, all positives will go one direction. All negatives will, will bend the other way. Yes. And so whether it's – so all you know from that is just really is it plus or minus. So you need other instruments to tell you how what the mass is. Now, there this is. silicon there tracker is. may help because because you're recording the trajectories it goes through. So a proton's about a 1,000 times heavier than an electron. So it's harder. It can't um, – you know, it, depending on the energy, mm -hmm. right, it's going to have a slightly different curvature than that. So so you, there's some information gained from that, but mm -hmm. that's where these other detectors come in to help you sort that out. Got it. Okay. So that's that's the difference. I was thinking positive charge, but they're yeah. just they're just different. So that um, makes sense. I would like to – can I go back and say one thing? Yeah, uh, please do. So um, since you were talking about antimatter mm -hmm. and matter, so that that's one of the outstanding questions in all of, of physics. Um you know, like we said earlier, about fit, it should have been about a 50-50 mix. There's actually some research out there based on theory that says shortly after the beginning of the universe, for it, it, the, the amount of positive matter was just barely above the, the, the count for negative matter. So, like, I think the number is about 10 billion. So for every 10 billion ant, uh, antimatter particles, there's 10 billion in one. <laughs> So they, it's just the slightest imbalance. Um, the current theory is that all this matter, any matter, annihilated each other, and that's why it's gone. And then you had the small residual of positive um, matter that ultimately led to, um, you know, having a, ma a positive matter-dominated universe. So, um, so that's why it's really important to try to understand, is there any original antimatter left over? Because... We could have antimatter galaxies or, 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 or gas clouds out in space or stars made out of antimatter. Hmm. Theoretically, it's possible, if, especially if it wasn't all used up or interacted early in the universe. So that, that's sort of what the AMS is looking for. Um, and it's hard to distinguish between is it the original antimatter or is it antimatter created because of dark matter interacting with itself. And so that's what it's trying to sort out. We, it, it's possible to measure antimatter. But where is it coming from? That's the big question. Okay. Yeah, this is super complicated. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> there's a lot. Um, so, so 
speaking of complicated, going to the how the AMS works. I know you said this is the second iteration that we're going to be working on on the space station. Yeah. There was one, I believe, to just make sure that this technology mm-hmm. works in space. Right. So that was uh, that was actually even before space station. Yeah, I yeah, think. that flew on the space shuttle yeah. back in um, 98. ninety. Yeah, ninety eight. Yeah. Um, and so that was called AMS01, um, and it was. You know, so most shuttle missions were pretty short, like less than two weeks. I think this one flew for 10 or 11 days, I, th- I believe. Um, and it, it was very similar, uh, maybe not quite as complex, but it, it was a sort of a pathfinder to, to prove out this technology. And in fact, um, I believe there's been six or seven papers that came out of that work. Even though it, it, it was active for maybe 10 days or so, it, it collected enough information to make some statistically relevant observations. Huh. Um, and it... it it's sort of one of its primary claims that it made was that a lot of people still quote and we're trying to verify now is sort of an upper limit to this uh, helium anti-helium uh, ratio. Um, so anti-helium is just another anti-particle, right? It's a helium, which has two protons, two neutrons, mm-hmm. but has a negative charge. Um, so AMS has the ability to distinguish between the two. And so um, a lot of people think if it can measure... So protons are the most abundant elements, and then helium's the second most. Um, so, but protons interact a lot with other materials. So you, you have, let's say, more noise, a lot of other things to consider, whereas the helium's probably a cleaner signal. And so um, it's really important to try to measure the helium uh, component to get, let's say, a more accurate um, understanding of the origin of dark matter. So that was an important find. And then the AMS2 detector is designed to try to probe a little bit this the same number, right? But with more accuracy. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, let's go into AMS two. It, it it looked at this helium anti helium and then actually proved that that technology works. Now the AMS two, it's it's a very complicated piece of equipment, and it took a long time to get up there, especially because of several delays too. Like yeah, even Columbia, I think. Had yeah, been. so there was, yeah, um, you know, I think there was probably delays even on the ground because it's such a complex uh, experiment. It's it's yeah. a typical experiment you might see at CERN. Um, it involves, uh, what, 60 different institutes as of now. Uh, that number could change a little bit, but 16 different countries. So, um, like I said, we had, I think, six different uh, detector systems or so. Um, so there's a lot of hardware, and so there's a lot of integration involved in, in a lot of different individual things that have to come together at once, plus combining with typical putting hardware up in space schedules, <laughs> things like that. So that made it difficult, but it did make it up in, on uh, Shuttle Discovery 98. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I think it was a 10-day 10, 10 mission or so. Uh, I, I was thinking about AMS-2, though. AMS oh, two. Yeah, AMS-2? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah AMS-2. Yeah, uh, so it's the same thing. Um, uh, it flew up on STS-134 in 2011, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I think the collaboration after AMS grew, the, the, the 60 number I was mentioning, I think that's really AMS-2. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it grew after that once it was proved successful. And then, plus it had uh, uh, extra hardware added to it, too, to, to help with the measurements. So it, it's a big integrated effort because... Um, not only is it massive, you need the space shuttle to take it up, 
uh, it's an external payload. It mounts on the outside of the space station. You have the power data um, connection. You have to use ISS communication, um, the, the high bandwidth we have to transmit all that data down. And you have a ground station. And, I mean, so there's a lot of working with that that sort of played in setting up all that and um, to help you know, get that infrastructure in. Yeah, that's a huge part of the story. I know it was it was difficult to get up there. You know, you said there was this big collaboration to make AMS2 this this possibility, but you know, it needed to go to the space station because of how complex it is. And you said it's observing so many particles. The space station had an abundance of power and a great system to transmit data that yeah. can actually make this thing work in space and was i think one maybe maybe the only place that yeah it, it, right now it's the only place like this right I yeah mean, it's a national laboratory it's in orbit um up there uh, a couple hundred kilometers up and it's the only place right now that we could um, have the infrastructure to do these sorts of things so okay so um that's a, that's a big part of the story. I did want to take this time, though, to plug, and I'll plug it at the end, too. There's this great documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. It was actually produced at NASA here, but it's called AMS, The Fight for Flight. And it's a whole yeah. story from from AMS-2 to the ground, fighting yep. its way, and then finally getting up to the yep. space station. Yeah, no, I, I've seen that. that, that yeah. Is a, yeah, I would recommend that, too. Oh, yeah. So that's a great snapshot of the history of, of AMS. So um, let's get into... Um, what's happening and and fixing it. So what is, what's going on with the AMS that we need to fix it right now? So I think, yeah, so the AMS originally, I think, had a three-year design life. And so we're well oh. past that, right? It started, I think, what, the, I think it became operational in 2011, shortly after it was installed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're well past that design life. It has, you know, like a lot of satellites and major pieces of hardware, you want to build redundant systems. And so um, it has these four cooling pumps to help circulate liquid carbon dioxide um, through uh, the, through the, the various detector systems to help radiate uh, absorb the heat and then radiate it off into space right to help keep the instrumentation cool mm-hmm. um, the reason why we need to do that is we're, we're measuring these uh, individual particle impacts that are very um, each one by itself is a small amount of energy but the electronics is very sensitive to temperature right if you have uh, very warm electronics you're going to have a lot of electrons bouncing around and it's just noise and it's hard to distinguish between the noise and the actual signal so if you cool it down you minimize the electron noise and so that's the purpose of the pumps and um i think three of them have pretty much failed and we're on the last one um so the the experiment was never designed to sort of uh be fixed in space so there's been a lot of planning for that but we're the idea is to go up there um remove the old system, put up new pump system, and extend the life. And I think the, 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 the numbers I've seen is that we can extend it probably for the rest of the life of the station, since all the other detectors seem to be operating really nice. Um, it's just a matter of getting the cooling pumps. Uh, I mean, it's still working now, but you know we don't have any more redundancy, so if we can get those up there and working, that'll guarantee more science. That's awesome. Now, you as a physicist, I'm sure, I mean, you're here now talking about this because you're interested in this. Why is it important, why is the AMS important for this discovery? Well, uh, it's important because, you know, we all have the big question of about life, the origin of life, the origin of the universe. There's, there's a lot we don't know. So ultimately, this is answering these big questions. Um, so... There's actually multiple fronts. There's the curiosity point, you know, for me, I like that. But in my day-to-day job, I've done a lot of work in the past with cosmic rays. And so we're actually gathering a lot of a lot of information on cosmic rays. 
And so NASA's main goal right now is to eventually um, spend more time out um, in space, right, let's say at the moon, and eventually go to Mars, right? So that means more time. Radiation is a big problem. So um, the better we can characterize the radiation and learn how to work in those environments makes a big difference. And so um, I'm always interested to get more data in that because um, I enjoy some of the modeling we've done to, to create that because there's a lot of physics and science involved in that. So I would say just in, in, in conjunction with that and just answering fundamental questions about the universe, um, if we actually find out where what if there, dark matter is and how that plays in the cosmological models, um, you know, that can reveal some information about um, unknown energy sources that we can maybe tap into also um, mm-hmm. to help for the benefit of humanity. So there, there's a lot of very futuristic kind of goals that come out of this, but um, it ultimately leads to greater understanding and uh, opening up the gateways for us to explore space. Yeah, there's multiple different um, physics disciplines, I think, that this mm-hmm. will help with. Definitely. And you're specifically, you've done a lot of, re- you even mentioned uh, a lot of research on cosmic rays. Yeah. And like you said, the effects on the human body. You know, what are, we, what, are, what are some of the things that you studied in terms of how cosmic yeah. rays affect the body? Well, so, so I, don't nece- I didn't necessarily look at the biological damage, but there's a whole, whole suite of um, scientists here at the Space and Life Sciences Group that, that does a lot of that work. Um, we do know radiation's bad, um, right? It's, there's, there's two types of effects. There's something called acute effects, which are short-term, um, high-dose like you, we've all seen the movies when you know bombs go off or whatever, and there's a lot of radiation. Pe- people mm. can die from that, right? So that that's a big problem because when we travel to Mars, there's bursts from the sun that are high, um, could be potentially high sources of radiation. So we um, there's ways to partially shield some of that. So that's always an active experiment um, or, or understanding of engineering problem, right? Is how how can we maybe avoid um, shield some of that or or what? Um, <clears throat> using magnetic fields is possibly one way to do it, uh, at least to shield part of it. But these things are, these cosmic rays are very high energy. So we may never fully be able to shield them 100%, but understanding the, uh, how the body tries to repair itself on certain kinds of radiation is an active area of research. Um, one of the bigger things um, that we're trying to protect most of our astronauts from right now is the risk of getting cancers from exposures, hmm. right? So we're trying to minimize the risk um, they're ca- they're categorized as radiation workers, just like nuclear or power plant workers are. Slightly different limits for to be conducive for space work, but um, so th- that stuff's carefully monitored in in practice um, when they select crews and so forth. So that's always a consideration. Um, my particular area that I st- was really focused in on is a lot of people don't know radiation is really bad for electronics. Um, hmm. So as opposed to a dose, which is accumulation of a lot lot of particles. You can actually have a single particle come in and take out your main processor and your flight computer, and you can lose your computer, right? And then lose control of the vehicle for it. You know, so there's a lot of engineering designs, and, and so we've designed the Orion vehicle uh, quite hardened to radiation. So, so that that's been a consideration, and, and just about any satellite that goes off uh, beyond low Earth orbit, or even, or let's say geosynchronous orbit and beyond, has to consider these things. Yeah. That's actually, we had an episode on that. We had an episode okay. on how, um, yeah. how Orion is radiation yep. hardened. And like you said, it could take out computer systems. So the way, you know, understanding how cosmic rays yeah. affect that, what they ended up doing was build redundancies. Yeah, so yeah, that, and that costs money, um, sure. but, but in, in space and in real estate, right, and in, in mass. Uh, so you have to figure about all those things out. So it's an integrated problem, but ultimately it's, it's a reliability problem too. And just one other thing that people might not know is not... Just like uh, 
radiation doesn't necessarily mean you're going to die if you get it exposed to your body. This, the analogy, analogy for electronics is it doesn't always break parts. It can, it can just change your data. Oh. That's the more dangerous stuff is when it flips your data around. How, how do you handle that? So you have to have smart software and things like that. Yeah. So those are all similar things. But radiation in general is one of the bigger risks to long-duration space flight that's still being worked uh, on the human level and um, to a lesser degree probably on the electronic side. Wow. Okay. But it's nevertheless drivers for designs and things like that. Yeah, so AMS is helping us to uh, understand kind of the formation of the universe, but then understand more about these particles and how they may we're, interact with stuff. Well, yeah, it's so we're learning, um, you know, we're basically counting them, right? So we're understanding the distribution of the types of particles and, and improving our ground-based models that let us predict what the fluxes of these particles are, let's say, at Mars, at the Mars orbit or something, right? Mm -hmm. So um, when we do... When we plan flights, we try to predict ahead of time what, what the radiation levels are going to be, depending on the length of the mission and the solar cycle and all, all these things, right? So the AMS data is helping us improve these models. That's awesome. Okay. So, um, you know, AMS is, is on the space station. We're coming up on some spacewalks that are helping to fix this piece of equipment. Well, I guess, like you said, not necessarily fix, but just add the redundancies and extend the life um, because some of those cooling pumps have, have, have failed. So just add, adding those. But, you know, we, we're, we're dedicating human, human spaceflight to this effort. You know, we have people going out and fix, and then and what we learn from it can be used for future human spaceflight. So, you know, you being a, a physicist, uh, why is it important to explore with humans? Well, um... So there, you know, this is this is a, a question that has answers, pros and cons both ways, right? I think most people probably would consider uh, robotics maybe as a pathfinder for humans. Um, obviously, sending humans is a risk, right? Um, so there's always that risk um, that we have to weigh for. Um, but some of the advantages for human spaceflight, I would say. Uh, you know, humans can have make quick decisions when when need to be. I, I remember one of the Apollo uh, 17 astronauts talking about their mission, looking at the geology on the moon and so forth. You know, so in a, in the course of eight hours, I think they covered 22 miles of surface. Hmm. Well, if you look at Mars Opportunity rover, it took eight years to cover that same area. <laughs> so, functionally, I mean, I think humans, because you can make the decisions and cover more territory, might be a little bit more efficient once the let's say the established and infrastructure is established. Um, but he, and also humans maybe can deploy certain things if we're looking um, at, let's say, drilling um, for in-situ resource utilization. That, that's a hard thing to do uh, with satellites, uh, I mean, uh, with robotics um, controlled through satellites or so forth. So I think there's some advantages to have humans doing some of that work. Um, certainly if we're gonna have a human presence somewhere, um, maybe if we're scouting out territories and things like that, you know, that might be better off for robotics type missions. But I think in the end, because we want a human presence, you, you, we have to prepare that get us used to working in these environments and so forth. So there's that part of it too. Um, so I think they both have their uses. It's just really what phase in the exploration um, we're in. Uh, also, some of the robotics missions can go to hostile environments that we can't do with humans. So mm -hmm. that, that's the advantage probably for robotics as well. Yeah. And we get a lot of the same answers, but I, I just love asking that question because yeah. we're in the business of human space. Yeah. Life, so just, yeah. um, I, I think, you know, one of the biggest things that I appreciate definitely is, is the inspiration value. I mean, you're not going to get yeah. someone to attach to a robot, um, but you can see them really, 
really feeling like the yeah. same feelings with a person yeah. going to explore. Yeah, and I would say, I would just add, like, if we're just strictly talking, if I'm only interested in particle physics, I don't need a human to do that, right? <laughs> we can build a detector and send it somewhere, and that's yeah. just as good from that perspective. You but don't I, want a person <laughs> grabbing particles well, as they I go through? it's just unnecessary, really. <laughs> but, but I think overall, in the, in the category of human space exploration, you have to have humans involved, yeah. right? And there, there's efficient reasons why to do that. Yeah. Well, Brandon Riddell, thank you so much for coming on and taking us through this uh, history of astrophysics, cosmology, and AMS, all fascinating stuff. I think yeah. I, I think I stayed in step with you, I think. <laughs> well, but uh, if, if not, we'll have, you, we'll have you on again because I can, I can talk about this, I think, all day. It's oh, great. just so fascinating. All right, well, appreciate, appreciate your time. All right, well, thank you, and I appreciate the time, and I hope it made sense, too. Thank you. <laughs> Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you uh, enjoyed this conversation about the science of uh, the alpha magnetic spectrometer and some basics of astrophysics and cosmology with Dr. Brandon Riddell. Definitely a fascinating discussion, and I really should have him back on to talk more about this stuff because it's super interesting. Uh, if you like podcasts, there's actually a few more NASA podcasts that you can listen to. I know specifically Gravity Assist goes into a lot of uh, planetary science and talks a lot about these astrophysics and cosmology. It goes deep into that, so you could definitely listen to them. Otherwise, check out some of the many other shows on nasa.gov slash podcasts. We're going to have updates on the alpha magnetic spectrometer at nasa.gov slash ISS, and you can watch the spacewalks live. Just go to nasa.gov slash NTV. You can look at the schedule there and see when the spacewalks are going to be. I would highly recommend that you watch the NASA documentary called AMS The Fight for Flight and learn more about the history and struggle of getting the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer on the space station. It's available through the link in the episode webpage. If you have a question uh, for us, go to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of any one of those um, social media platforms, whichever one you like best. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on October 8th, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polino, Rachel Berry, and the International Space Station Program Science Office team. Thanks again to Dr. Brandon Riddell for taking the time to come on the show. And we'll be back next week with more about the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer.